Well, today we continue our three-part series through the majestic book of Isaiah, uh, written by the prophet Isaiah. And um, as we mentioned last week, it's good to reiterate again, this prophecy comes 700 years before the person of Jesus Christ. So whether or not you're a Christian or, or not, this is truly remarkable that someone can prophesy such accurate things that then when people see and know Jesus Christ, they say, what has been written 700 years ago has now been fulfilled in Christ. Well, we saw last week that God had promised a Messiah who would reign, a new king to govern his people as they couldn't govern themselves. And this is a a hugely significant thing is that kings in Israel had a nasty track record of abandoning God. And they chose instead to submit themselves to foreign and earthly kings. And so therefore God promises his true king would come and reign over his people, bringing justice and righteousness all the way to the very edges of the earth. Well, this week Isaiah gives us more of a picture of who this Messiah king is. This awaited Messiah is, while he is king, he is also the one who suffers and serves. And we see this in uh, chapters 38 to 55. We can call this the book of the the servant. So chapters 38, 55. You just kind of open your Bibles right to the middle. I believe it's on 598. You should be able to find that, at least if you're using the black Bibles right in front of you. We are covering a lot of ground, just like we did last week. Last week we covered 37 chapters. Today we cover, obviously, 38 to 55, uh, almost 20 chapters. And what we're doing here is we're trying to get the big picture, the lay of the land, the 30,000 foot view, um, so that uh, we can kind of see the the bigger picture of what God is doing in salvation history. In this case, the book of Isaiah. So while it's good to walk through smaller sections, which we will do after this series is over, we go into Ephesians for more than 10 weeks. Uh, Right now, we're just tackling Isaiah in three large sections. Two weeks from now, we're going to finish off this three-part series and look at the Messiah who conquers. So I pray that by the end of it, or even right now, we all would be coming to a greater understanding of the book of Isaiah, that we all would be coming to a greater understanding of God's wisdom behind His plan of salvation, as He sets Christ on the throne, the Messiah who reigns, the Messiah who suffers and serves, and then also the Messiah who conquers. Uh, Last week we saw that God's people had abandoned Him. Though God in His grace drew near to the people, He gathered them, He formed them. Uh, Where He wanted His reign to be known, the people chose to reject Him, and instead they allied themselves with other kings. And this indeed is a costly decision for uh, God's people, because as they learn, the very things that they ally themselves to come around and bite them, or they really destroy them. Last week we saw that God moves to to judge the people for their sin, but we also saw that he moved to save his people through placing this king on the throne who would reign and bring justice and righteousness. This week we double-click on the fact that God saves. God saves. He is a God who saves. He is a God who pursues sinners. And the first thing we look at is God's zeal to save. So if you're taking notes here, this is the first point. God's zeal to save, especially when we so easily turn. God's zeal to save, especially in our turning. 
We have an example in our passage today of one who so easily turns away from his God there in chapters 38 and 39, uh, which you should be there already. Uh, this, this is a moving story about Judah's king named King Hezekiah. He gets sick and then he's on his deathbed basically and in this great marvelous display of humility and godliness he prays to the Lord basically that God would extend his life. God hears him and then he promises him an extra 15 years. And then to prove his promises, to display, no my promises down the line will stand, this is what he does. Uh, He basically takes a shadow cast on a staircase by a sun clock or a sundial. He says, I'm going to go ahead and move that ten steps backwards on the staircase to prove to you this miraculous declaration that my promises stand. And so Hezekiah is supposed to have a lot of confidence in God's promises, that God's going to do what he says. Just as he turns the sun backwards, or so it seems, through the shadow, he will do what he promises to Hezekiah. And then you get this poem that, that follows, and it reveals Hezekiah's thoughts as he really moves from despair to hope in God. He moves from despair to hope in God. And he's kind of like this picture of uh, very much the Christian, right? Who struggles and suffers and then finds hope in God. And then look at the conclusion there in verse 17. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. And then look at verse 20. He just declares, the Lord will save me. Here, Hezekiah is a model of godliness, a dependent man, recognizing God's sovereignty, recognizing God's grace and salvation, recognizing God's forgiveness comes through God alone. But where chapter 38 presents Hezekiah's faithfulness, chapter 39, if you just kind of butt them right up next to each other, as they are in Isaiah, chapter 39 presents Hezekiah's faithlessness as he so quickly turns. We identify with this Hezekiah, don't we? Well, one moment we may be trusting the Lord, and the next we may find ourselves giving into sin, struggling desperately. In chapter 39, Hezekiah rejects God's deliverance and then opts for, allies himself with, the very thing he thinks can save him. That is Babylon. You, you feel that there, that sort of uh, that uh, juxtaposition? It seems so, you know, like it doesn't match. You have God, you have Hezekiah declaring, the Lord will save me, and then right here he allies himself with Babylon. A little bit of history. Uh, Assyria was the dominating force of the time, so you think of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Uh, They basically owned all of that section, even down the, the Mediterranean coast. And in conquering other kingdoms, they would either basically destroy them to take them, or they would kind of bully them. Bully them into paying them more taxes and tribute. Regardless, if you were the smaller kingdom, right? Maybe some of you guys are thinking of elementary school and you got the, you know, the, the, the bully in mind. <clears throat> if you were the smaller kingdoms and you wanted to revolt, let's say from the bully and his posse, the perfect time to do so was when the king died. Or the main bully kind of got uh, expelled. <clears throat> Central authority is weakened. There's a leadership vacuum, and the leaders who then need to take up the leadership roles, they're trying to figure out what do we need to do, which king should we select, etc., etc. And this is what happened with Babylon under the Assyrian Empire. A guy named Merodach Baladan, you don't have to memorize his name, Merodach Baladan of Babylon, he was on the eastern side 
of the Assyrian kingdom. He seized the day and rebelled against Assyria's king. In fact, he did it twice, and he was quite successful. And in this political chess game, he thought that there was a better chance to, uh, to break free from Assyria's bondage by getting the western side, too, to rebel. So here you have the eastern side, where he is, in Babylon, and then you have the western side, which is where Judah is. So he goes and approaches Judah's king, Hezekiah, and says, Hey, have you ever thought about allying together? So therefore we can throw off the shackles of Assyria, the big bully, <clears throat> the bully on the block. And sending letters and presents to Hezekiah, look there in verse 2 of 49. This is God's people, mind you. He just said, God will save me. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. But that's not it. Look at what Hezekiah does. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. You get the picture that Hezekiah is very loose. Like he's committing adultery with Babylon against God. He's so loose that he even invites pagan nations to wander around, looking at everything, and he freely exposes everything to him. There's nothing in his kingdom, nothing in his realm, that he did not show them. And look at Isaiah's rebuke there in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. So, material goods. <clears throat> he says, your very own sons shall be taken away to be their captives. This is a response that we would expect from God given the first 37 chapters of Isaiah. God gives His people over to the very sins that they themselves want. It's kind of like this uh, breaking news story that some of you guys heard. There's this adultery website. I've never been on it. I don't really know that much about it. <clears throat> but a lot of people went up and signed up. I think it's where you go and find adulterous relationships. And it's all supposed to be in secret. What happened is someone hacked the website. They got all the credit card information. They got all the names. So you can list it. There's a bunch of school names, people with EDU uh, email addresses that are listed on this adultery website. So for some reason, the guys who want to expose themselves to other people, they go on and get their credit card information, all of their personal stuff. Some guy gets it all and publishes it to the web. So the very people who want to expose themselves to other people in committing adultery, they themselves are exposed to the whole entire world. It's a very practical example here of God giving people over to what their hearts really want. That's what's going on here. He says, Babylon, the very person that you're committing adultery with, will go on and take you away, sweep you off your feet, and take you to be captives. Look at Hezekiah's response. It's just appalling. Look there in verse 8. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. It's good. This is judgment on God's people. It is good that we be taken away. Exile, no problem. And the reason why there, it says, For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. This is mind-boggling. Exile is good. Plundering of my kingdom is good. All that the fathers have built and created, they get swept off, swept away. Because, at least for me and my reign, I see peace. Apparent peace. You see there is functional idol is peace 
tranquility, however he might understand it. And so therefore, making allies with Babylon is what helps him reach his functional idol. Babylon is just an ally to get him to what he really wants, some sort of apparent peace. You know, we are so tempted to think that Hezekiah is just a dummy, isn't he? But we too, again, are like him. So, easy for, so easily forsaking spiritual good, long-term spiritual good, eternal spiritual good, for short-term apparent earthly benefit. We say at one moment, I love Jesus, I love His reign, I love His wisdom, I love following Him, I love being discipled by Him, being His followers, and I trust Him. But then when in danger, we so quickly disregard God, the sovereign on his throne. I mean, don't we so easily, in our stress and in our anxiety, hastily consult the world's wisdom? We might claim the Lord, yes, the Lord rules over my life, and I love that. Everything I have is for God's glory. But then when we find ourselves in a bind, we so quickly summon our functional idols to the open house that is our life calling them, craving their wisdom just so they might search us out and see how we can navigate everything that's in us to, to use all those resources to lay hold of the very things that are not God. And we say, give us your wisdom, give us your advice. We do this so much more than we think. I mean, think about loneliness. When you feel lonely, don't we listen to the world's agents of relationship? So here, you know, I'm using this real estate thing here. The agents of relationship, the worldly relationships. And we listen to them, and instead we disregard your Savior. You disregard your Savior, whose love and passion is relentless. The agent of relationship says, no, you must pursue all these ungodly relationships. Even if they're, even if they're non-Christians, you must pursue them. Because really, you know, without a relationship, you're nothing. But Christ's love is passionate. It is relentless. Think about this. When someone speaks to you unkindly, we listen to the agents of revenge. And so we therefore heed their wisdom and respond in a unique way, or in a like way, unkind as well, instead of showing grace and mercy and self-control to display to other people the very character of Jesus... Think about when you're stressed out, we give ear to the agent of pleasure. Perhaps we run to fantasies. Give ourselves to indulging. As opposed to running to our faithful Father in trust and hope that He alone is satisfying. Think about when the stock market tanks like it did this week. We so desperately consult with the agents of the markets, living off every word that comes from their mouths. Abandoning the fact that just as God sets the foundations of the universe and rules over it, so God rules even over the crashing stock markets. We so easily forget, so quickly turn, and so loudly declare our allegiance to these functional idols, calling them, saying that it's open house and they can collect on the commission. But you know what our chapters today show us, and where we should be encouraged again and again and again, is despite our turnings, which so frequently happen, despite all of our turnings, God is zealous to save. 
and zeal, which actually is referenced a number of times here in the script in Isaiah as well as the scriptures. Zeal is a perfect word, I think, and you can define it as like great energy, commitment, determination, and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Great energy, commitment, determination, and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. In this case, the salvation of sinners. God is zealous to save, and, and His zeal really comes across here in this passage, big time, big time. Uh, so, you know, you're, you know God's word to Hezekiah, right? It's bad, they're going to go into exile. After <clears throat> Hezekiah sort of pimps himself out and Israel out for supposed peace, uh, Hezekiah says, yes, this is good. At least I'll have peace in my day. You know what God says? Right after that, comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You turn your backs, I give comfort. From the prophetic mouth comes two tender words of hope. Your warfare is ended. All your strife with Assyria, all your strife with Babylon, all your strife with Syria, and then Israel to the north, Ephraim to the north. He says, all that ended one day. And you know what? The bigger problem, he says, your iniquity will be pardoned. And this pattern sort of drives all of these chapters forward. The people sin, and then God delivers all in his own zeal. Go ahead and flip. We're going to be doing a lot of, a lot of flipping again today. Go ahead and flip to 41, verses 21 to 29. <clears throat> just look over at verse 24, right? So just think, this pattern here, people sin, God delivers in his zeal to save. You look at verse 44 in this judgment there, sorry, verse 24 of chapter 41. There God talks about the foolishness of idols. He says, behold, everybody look, you idols are nothing and your work is less than nothing, an abomination who chooses you. And then verse 29, he just continues with this judgment of foolishness. He talks about the foolishness of idol worshippers. He says, behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their middle images are empty wind. And then you look at the next verse. 42 verse 1. Behold. So let's look again on the third time. It says, Behold, uh, idols are foolish. Uh, behold, idol, those who craft idols are foolish. And then he says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the streets. That is, he won't overpower those who are also calling. And then look at this wonderful verse here. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench out. What a great hope for people who don't get it right, right? For sinners, those who are already broken... He says, no, this servant, this chosen servant, the first time we hear of this servant, at least uh, uh, the, the passage that we're looking at, the first time we hear of this servant, he says, no, this servant will not break those who are already broken. Instead, he mends the broken. That's what the implication is. He rehabilitates the broken. Those who are lacking flame for worship or oil for the, for the fire, he doesn't quench it out thinking, oh, those things are useless. No, he, he adds fuel to the fire. He cultivates and encourages yeah, this is, this is marvelous compassion here. And then flip over to 42, verses 18 to 25. We see the same pattern here. We see that the people sin, and God comes in like the hero that he is in his, in his determination to save. If you were just to skim through 18 to 25, 
You see there in verse in chapter 42 that God's people, because of their sin, are bound, they are blind, they are sinful, they are deaf. It's not good. But look at, once again, the very next verse at 43.1, But now, thus says the Lord. Right? The one who created everything, created us to be in relationship with Him, the one who formed us, who formed Israel. He says, But now fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. That's intimate language. I've called you like the son that you are. You are mine. All in his zeal, he comes in on his white horse and he saves the day. Christian, is this not comforting to you? Note that all these verses do not say, now that you have gotten your act together, now that you have healed your own wounds, now that you yourself have lit up your fire of worship since it's so pathetic, then I will do it. That's not what he says. Well, the Bible says what God himself says is, you didn't do it. So I will do it. Isn't that comforting? So, so we, therefore, as sinners who have rebelled against God, can come knowing that God knows that we are sinners. And we want to hear that language over and over again. You did not do it, therefore I have done it. This is encouraging for people who don't get it right. Unless, of course, you're relying on yourself for your own righteousness. Then, then it's not good. Then it's just, this message is judgment. This message tells you you can't do it. But if you understand grace and mercy, this message is marvelous. That God, being zealous to save, throws all of His weight, all of His determination, all of His very own power into the cause of saving you if you are a Christian. Thank God he is not like us. If he was, he would have abandoned us just as we abandoned him. But he is a zealous God, determined to save sinners. He is zealous. Just think about this for a little bit, right? He is zealous for grace. Right? We all know sometimes what it might be, look like to be zealous for our own passions. God is zealous for grace. Zealous for mercy. Zealous for forgiveness. Zealous for righteousness. Zealous for commitment. He's zealous for his people. So Christian, if you are discouraged in your walk of faith, if you are by God's grace, you're hearing his word broken over your sin, you recognize that God's grace comes to you, you recognize that He gives us the means of grace by which we are to run to His Word, run to God in prayer as He is our Father, run to confession of sin, run to the church seeking help, uh, battling against our very own sin. If you are discouraged, we need to hear Jesus' declaration to His people and hear His zeal Behind it. And some of you guys, you know, you might question, you might doubt your very own salvation. Because perhaps you're so focused on focusing on yourself, as opposed to focusing on the greatness and zeal of God to claim his sinners back. This is what Jesus says. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, that is anybody, whoever comes to me, I will never cast. 
incredible promise. He says in John 10, 18, oh, that verse, by the way, is John 6, 37. He says in John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life. No one, no one will be able to snatch them from me. He says, I give them eternal life. No one will be able to snatch them from me. No one will be able to snatch you from Christ. Even though we still wrestle with sin, Christians can have great confidence because God is zealous to save sinners. And of course He is. Of course He is. Logically, of course He is. Of course He's going to protect and preserve His people. That is you. You know what is at stake if He didn't? Or that if He did sort of neglect a few sheep and they so happen to wander off, crash the gates and escape? Uh, what's at stake is His very own glory. What is at stake is His very own steadfast love in that if He promises to protect His sheep, He will go to the death to protect His sheep. That's what's at stake. His very own glory, His very own steadfast love, His very own lavish grace. He says those in this uh, sheepfold, I give them grace. Also, what is at stake is His very own justice, His very own strength, His very own protection, His perfect ability to save. That's what's at stake. If he loses some. Now would God, would Jesus ever say, would Jesus ever sort of give up on protecting his own glory? All those very things that are good and marvelous? Those very things that we wish we could see in ourselves? The answer is no. He is perfectly able. And so he will. This brings us to point number two, God's power to save us. God's power to save us. At point number one, we looked at God's zeal to save us, his absolute determination his zeal behind the cause of saving sinners. Now we look at God's power to save. We understand how zeal and ability go together, don't we? Zeal, that is his determination to fulfilling a cause. And then ability, they go together. Those things are like partners. And um, they oftentimes they are in proportion to one another. So think about it this way, right? You guys like sports teams, possibly? Uh, when a sports team has ability... The fans have zeal for their players. The fans have great zeal for their players if their team has ability. Now, on, add on top of that, if the sports team has the ability to win championship after championship after championship, your zeal ought to be, it ought to be more consistent. Greater zeal follows greater ability. Now, if I was zealous in my own ability to do ultimate frisbee, which I have never played, never watched, and frankly, to no offense to those of you who might like Ultimate Frisbee, I don't really care to. If I have great zeal going around to you guys, and that's the only thing I talk about is Ultimate Frisbee, uh, I deserve to be written off in a heartbeat, right? You don't care about my zeal. You don't care because you know that there is zero ability. You're going to write me off thinking I'm crazy, but with God, there is never a reason to write him off. You cannot write him off. If you examine his ability, his track record, and everything that he's done, his zeal is always in proportion to his 100% ability. God is 100% able. And so his zeal is always at 100%. Both things are full throttle at the same time. And you see there, ability is in proportion to zeal. Zeal is in ability to proportion. His perfect ability grounds 
is crazy zeal. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 12. Go ahead and flip over there. Listen to these rhetorical questions meant to be declarations of God's exclusive glory, His power, His sovereignty, His divine ability. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has closed, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and, whom, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop <laughs> From a bucket. You know, in all of these rhetorical questions, the answer we know. It is no one. I love how Isaiah, and in all the prophets, you have these competing truth claims. You know, last week we saw Assyria. Assyria sends out their sort of, uh, their collector. Assyria and all of their boast and all their pomp and their arrogance. They send out their messenger, uh, the Rob Shaka, to go and taunt Israel. And he stands out and he declares to everybody, Do not let... Do not let your leader deceive you thinking God can save. Who can rescue you from my hand, from the domination of Assyria? Right, that's a declaration, that's a truth came, gets shot up into the sky. And God just kind of comes up and he just sort of brings them down. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. These are competing truth claims here. And God brings all of them. The Rabshakeh, Assyria, Babylon, even themselves, into the dust. Isaiah 40, and in throughout all of the book, you know how he does this. He says, let's go back to creation. That's what he does there in the passage that we just read. Let's just go back before the creation. Was anybody present there with me? Did anybody give me counsel? And then when I actually created, did anybody help me? Anybody give me assistance? And the answer there is no one. No one. Because he alone has perfect ability. He alone has all ability. The only one who has ability to save. He's the only show in town. And all other gods are imposters. And so regularly throughout our section, God's power and greatness is compared to false idols. The impotence of idols. So in verses 18 to 20, if you just skim over those in 40... Chapter 40, you know, the idols, they can't do anything. You go back before the creation, you see the sovereign God. You look at idols, they can't do anything. In fact, they need people to make them. We're just going to flip around to various portions here. And I, just, we, we just want to make it clear here that the sovereignty and the ability of God to save is compared to the impotence of idols. You turn over to 42.21. In this section, God brings these false gods into his heavenly courtroom to give an account. He says there, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, evidence, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Or how, or how about this, tell us the former things, what they are, that we might consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's to do good or do harm. Let's basically, you know, do something. Do anything that we may be dismayed and terrified. 
In another instance, turn over a couple chapters, 44 verse 12. God here, he goes after those who make idols. And he just shows logically how, how it just doesn't match here. It's illogical to worship uh, idols made from the stuff of man. And it reads like a comedy. He says, you who do everything, you who take the cutting tool, you who take the hammers, you who trace out the pattern for it, you design its shape, you make it into the figure of a man. Man, he says, you man are making this thing and you're giving it the figure of man. Then you go on and you give it the beauty of man. And then you set it up in the house of man. And then he turns to look at the substance of the idol and says, you, you're the one who planted the tree. The rain itself, it was nourished by the rain. And then, and then you went on and chose the wood. The conclusion that we are supposed to draw is that this has no power. It possesses zero ability. And then in relation to the substance of the idol, it serves at man's command. That's what it is. Look, 44, 15. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles the fire and bakes the bread. Uh, but with the other half, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it, crying out, Deliver me! You are my god! You see what he's saying? These physical idols, they serve at man's command. You get a little chilly? You toss another one onto the fire. You want to roast some s'mores? He says, you light it up. We do whatever we want with it. And it serves at our command. But with the other half of that block of wood, uh, we shudder and we cry. We fall down on our faces, worshiping it, declaring, save me now. Makes no sense, he says. And then in redirecting his people's hearts, God redirecting his people's hearts, look at what God says in 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Then go on to verse 8. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And going on to 21. Remember these things, I, Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me ever. I have blotted out or swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed. You know that when we sell ourselves to physical idols or functional idols, we doubt God's ability, don't we? His ability to save, to deliver, to change us. But, but what we should be doubting, according to this passage, is the ability of our functional gods, the ability of our physical gods to deliver, save, and change, right? They are the impotent ones, according to God's truth. So, <clears throat> we can do a test. We can do a test. If you're exploring Christianity, glad you're here. Uh, let's just put Christianity to a test, the God of Christianity. I challenge you to give yourselves no holds barred to living and loving your false God. Give it a try. In your head, though, not for real. In your head. <clears throat> it's a logical test. Um, 
you, you know, when I, when I was thinking about this, we have friends uh, whom we knew in Louisville, and they, they loved eating sweets. And they would call sweets like their downfall. <clears throat> and so what, and unfortunately the gal's a diabetic, so it's, it's bad. <clears throat> what they would do is that on certain weekends they would have junk out weekends. So they would give themselves to eating junk food one whole weekend. And every time they did it, they regretted it so badly, just eating sweets for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They regretted it every single time. And that's kind of like the test here that we can see what happens when we give ourselves to our functional idols. And my guess is you know what this is like. Maybe even last night you know what it's like for your functional idols to fail you. Give yourself to the idol of comfort, where every decision made, every dollar spent, every hour used goes to maximizing your own comfort, your own personal comfort. Okay, just fast forward a week. What would your family say about you? What would your family say about the God of comfort? You ever think they're, they're going to fall down on their faces worshiping the same thing that you would after you've already neglected them, choosing to maximize your comfort at every single turn of the way, not good. You probably don't even have to think about it. You probably just look to your friend or a family member, sadly. A grown man or a grown woman struggling to maintain a steady job because they have given themselves to the God of comfort. Here's uh, another one. Give yourself to gaining control and power. Every word spoken. Every face given, every physical gesture, every act was used to execute with the intent to control, deceive, and manipulate, to run over. If you're a leader in any sort of capacity, whether it be group projects at school, whether it be your family, your workplace, ask them if it makes them feel belittled or if it makes them want to be underneath your authority. Perhaps, perhaps you already know yourself what it feels like to work for someone concerned with power tripping at every step of the way rather than your own development as the company's employee. Let's go on to the next one. What about pleasure? Throw yourself headlong into pleasure. And here I'm thinking about sexual pleasure. This is the same pleasure that consumes until it's all used up like a fire consuming oxygen until the thing itself is all gone or frankly you are just Bored, looking for the next fling, spending resources trying to maximize feeling good. And I know for a fact that many of us do not have to look far to find a broken marriage, find someone who has been cheated on, find some spouse's life or children's lives that have been gutted by those who give themselves into the pursuit of pleasure. These are the glorious heights of salvation offered in our functional gods, right? No power to save, only to destroy. Now you look at a Christian. You just think about what it's like to be a Christian if you understand the Christian worldview rightly. If you're a Christian and you want to throw yourself headlong towards the God of the Bible, and you genuinely are converted, you're genuinely born again by the Spirit's power, we have a very different end, don't we? Let's just consider, just one little aspect of the Christian life, God's power and ability to change a person morally. And we're going to look at salvation, a right standing before, before God, but let's just think about moral standing here, or moral change. 
God says comfort is necessary and that rest is good. But it ought always be coupled with discipline and hard work. Comfort isn't to be marked by laziness. And the Christian, even, seeks the comfort of others. We as Christians want other people to be comforted with the very comfort of Christ. Now, every family who is led by a leader who flees from laziness and workaholism, we would say, I want that man. I want that woman. I want that person in authority. That they understand the balance between hard work and, at the same time, godly rest. And they understand godly rest with, at the same time, God's command with uh, hard work and discipline. Think about control, power, and authority. You know, these things are not necessarily bad. Whether you are supervising one or three thousand, we know that God gives us authority. Uh, a Christian has authority, power, and the task of overseeing. But in them all, the Christian must be a good steward of their authority. Always using their authority under God's authority. Always imaging God's authority with their own authority. Always flexing their authority for God's glory. Now I'm pretty sure your employees, if you want to do throw yourself headlong into a biblical understanding of godly control, power, and authority, I'm sure all your employees will say, I want to work for that guy. I enjoy working for that man who protects me. And also encourage me, also rebukes me when I'm being lazy. They're going to request to work for you. Think about pleasure. Think about sexual pleasure. Uh, it clearly is a God thing in God's eyes. God designed us to experience pleasure. Uh, but of course, pleasure that forwards commitment. And falls underneath commitment. Enjoying pleasures within the boundaries of marriage. What spouse... What child, what, what spouse wouldn't feel safe and secure, treasured being married to that man, that woman, who always understands pleasure to forward commitment and be submitted to commitment in a biblical sense. We can do this all day, friends, all day. As Christians, we believe that we are being changed by the very power of God and being transformed more into the image of of Christ. Without divine power, we all would be lost. Uh, let me encourage you, if you are investigating Christianity, or even if you're a little fuzzy on how this works and you say you're a Christian, I encourage you to examine the change in your friend's life who brought you. Um, you know, there are some ground rules, though, before you go on and, and uh, ask them. There are ground rules. You cannot hold us to a, sta a higher standard than God holds us to. In other words, when you investigate, you will, without doubt, find sin. We are being changed, as in we haven't been changed completely. We are being changed. We still wrestle with sin. But God, nevertheless, over the course of our entire lifetimes, is making us more holy. So expect to see, from, expect to see a little bit of sin. And go on and ask them, you know, what do you do with money? How did you use money beforehand? How are you using money now? How are you using your time then? How are you using your time now? What does it look like to pursue sexual pleasure? then, before you were a Christian, and then now that you are a Christian. What does it look like for you to lead? What does it look like for you to parent? This, you can do this forever, and you'll come to understand a little bit more about what God actually does when He saves in Jesus Christ. Of course, any change that takes place ultimately flows from what God did on the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is what brings us to our third and final point. 
Here we look at God's surprising way of salvation. We saw God's zeal in salvation. We saw God's ability, His power to save. Now we see God's surprising way of salvation. We'll talk more about Jesus dying on a cross in a little bit. But the first surprising way that God moves to deliver is by sovereignly moving throughout history to deliver the nation. He moves sovereignly through history to deliver the nation. Remember, because of Hezekiah's sin, Babylon was going to sweep them off their feet into captivity. Well, God prophesies in Isaiah 45 that Cyrus, a future king from Persia, would send Israel back to their land, but still rule over them. Now, for the Israelites, this surely was a surprise. The people of God led by a pagan king? And you know what their response is, right? God says, I will deliver you. And then, of course, later on, you're going to know even greater deliverance. He says, I'm going to deliver you. They grumble, even at God's sovereign working throughout history, even though it was their sin that landed there, them there in the first place. And it's just like human nature to grumble at the consequences of sin, is it? Now, in the verses that follow, we don't really hear their grumbling, uh, but it is everywhere implied in Isaiah chapter 45. Go ahead and flip over there. Look at verse 9. This is God's response to a grumbling people. He says, Woe to him who strives with God who formed him. He promises deliverance, and they're striving underneath God's sovereign uh, working, his sovereign deliverance of this nation. Uh, he says, A pot among earthen pots is what they are as they grumble in their sin. But then God goes on and says in verse 47, But you be guaranteed, uh, you know this guarantee, Babylon too will fall. They too will be humbled and sit in the dust. And look at 48 verse 1. Still, the people have hard hearts. They confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. Verse 4, they are obstinate with necks of iron and foreheads like brass. It's like, you know, you can imagine sort of saying, Hello, are you there? They have become just like the idols they follow. But of course, this national and political deliverance isn't ultimate, isn't what they really need. They need spiritual salvation. God's people had lost their way spiritually long ago. He had formed His people. He had intended them to display His beauty, His glory. His word was to be their light and to light their path. His power and deliverance was to be their hope. And so they would bring glory, all glory, to God. This is what Israel was to be and do, but they failed. Instead, 42 verses 18 to 25, again, if you, just, you don't have to turn there, you just listen. They were bound, blind, and sinful. So while Cyrus was a servant of God in a certain sense, listen to what God was doing. God was preparing another servant. A servant who would deliver his people, enable them to do what God charged them to do, and he would save them from their sins, because of course they could not. There are four poems about this servant in our section today. If you just pull out that outline there in your bulletin, there'll be a little tiny box there. There are four servant songs. We're not going to read them all. But they paint a picture of how a servant would be everything Israel could never be. The servant would do what Israel could never do. And so clearly we would see God's true son. There are four servant songs. Once again, they're listed right there. Now, now hear this picture of who this servant is. The first servant song, the servant brings justice to the nations and never gets discouraged. Israel clearly is discouraged. 
It is His word, His law, His justice that would go to the very ends of the earth. The second servant saw Him. The servant is fully prepared, fully affected, in whom God would be glorified to the fullest. His salvation would not only go to ethnic Jews, but to all ethnicities, to the very edges of the earth. The, th- the third servant song, here he is faithful, he's instructed in the Lord, he lives in dependence and in perfect faith in God. But it is the fourth servant song that really gets at Israel's and our biggest problem. Go ahead and flip over there. See, it's great that his law would reach the ends of the earth. It's great that there would be worldwide justice. It's great that he would glorify God to the fullest. It's great that he would be faithful to God, instructed by the Lord. But what Isaiah says we need, according to Isaiah chapter 6, is we need to be holy before a holy God. That's what Isaiah 52 to 53 addresses. What will we do with our sin before a holy God? And so this climaxes in terms of this idea of who this uh, suffering servant is. Let me turn there. Now you don't really realize it at first, that this suffering servant bears our sins, so we can just kind of step back a little bit and pretend, if you're a Christian, that you don't know this passage. We kind of go on reading. We don't really know what's going to happen. It says in 52.13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then, so you look there. He's going to be exalted. Okay, we understand who that is. I mean, uh, you know, Israel itself is called a servant. We'll go ahead and go to 53 verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Okay, okay, so why? Why do we esteem him not? Why is he, why is he rejected by men? I mean, is, is he born with a defect? Does he have some sort of disease? I mean, is he just for some reason sort of repulsive? Maybe he himself is uh, desperately given to other things. But then we get a reason there in verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted all of a sudden we know why he is rejected we know he's rejected because he does something for us he bears our difficulties and he carries our sorrows he's a man of weeping a man of of great sorrow and he bears that on behalf of us this is why he's rejected and despise I me. Mean, who can bear all of the guilt and the shame that we ourselves experience? And so we count him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why is that? Is it because in our judgment we think, oh yeah, we, we can't imagine bearing everybody's sorrows, and so that's why he's smitten by God. But he gives us an answer there in verse 5. It's because he suffers the suffering we deserve. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Do not miss what this servant does on behalf of sinners. He takes our very punishments that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve. He pierced for our transgression. He crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His very wounds we are healed. And though we have strayed again and again and again in our own inability, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. No doubt that is surprising, is it not? The issue that needs to be taken care of as we face a holy God who is holy, 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 and the glory of the Lord fills the temple and the whole entire earth, the question of sinners is what do we do to get in fellowship with that God, that King? Here he says that this is a surprising act because the king who rules and reigns would bring justice to the nations as he sets the record straight, as he exerts his dominance, as he leads his people to freedom. He does this through suffering and dying in meekness and gentleness and self-control, saving people from the death and judgment that was rightly theirs by bearing it on himself. And so in the New Testament, you have all sorts of people. You've got Matthew saying, this has been fulfilled. You've got the Ethiopian eunuch who's never heard the gospel before, but yet he's reading Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, pierced for our transgressions. And he says, that is Jesus, or so Philip says. You have Peter, in 1 Peter he's saying, we all should follow Christ's example who suffered. As it says in Isaiah chapter 53, the whole New Testament says this is all been fulfilled in Christ who died on the cross for the sins of many, for the sins of all who would repent of their sins and believe upon Him. And they would know forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, adoption into His family. So then the question is, If Jesus has borne all of our sins on the cross, and we know that anybody who runs to Him will be free, free, and know full and final forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, the question then is, why would we rely on ourselves to face a holy God? Why would we bear our sins alone when Christ stands willing to bear your sins upon Himself? If you would, return, repent, and believe. So friends, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, listen to God's universal call of salvation. Now keep in mind here, God is zealous to save. He is able to save. And this is the call that just beams out from Christ's cross. And he says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, After all those servant songs are read, after you know who this person is, after you know what this person does for you, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Everyone who has no money, come, Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because Christ has already paid for it. If you're visiting and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me encourage you. If you're interested in knowing more about who this servant is, there's something inside of you that's excited to know full and final forgiveness. Talk to me about it. I'll be standing back there at the doors. Be happy to study the Bible with you just to hold out who this Christ is so that you might know it and believe it. To conclude, God is zealous to save. And we see this in 
We see the zeal and power to save most clearly in Christ and His cross work. Christ throws all of His determination and all of His weight literally on the cross. His very own self hanging on the cross and then He rises from the dead three days later. All in the cause of saving sinners. Talk about the zeal to save sinners. The ability to save sinners. Who possesses such perfect justice? But Christ who is the fulfillment of God's justice and righteousness against our sin. Who possesses such steadfast love, but Christ who left His position of glory and honor to take on flesh in order to die for sinners. Who possesses such forgiving mercy, but Christ who weeps over the loss and generously, joyfully takes upon our sin. Who possesses such determined grace, so as to shower blessings of salvation upon His people for free Forgiveness, right standing, adoption, and inheritance. How surprising indeed that though we were the rebels, the king who reigns on the throne, he would come and suffer for the very people who sinned against him in order that God would be glorified and that people would be saved. Thank God he is zealous to save. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You as we recognize You are the only God who is able to save. And how awesome is it that You are so zealous to save while we are, are, are sinners and have sinned again and again and again. Lord, You lavish Your grace on us again and again and again and again. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that while sin is great, your grace is greater. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would have such great confidence in your marvelous work on the cross. As you have paid for our sin, and so they are gone. You have taken our shame, and so therefore we are free. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, you say that we will soar so high like eagles. You say that we will be lifted up because you have done what you promised. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give power to the faint, that you increase our strength, and that even as yous, who lack wisdom like we do, though we are faint and weary, though we might be exhausted, yet, Lord, we can wait and lean and trust on you, and you renew our strength. You say, Lord Jesus, that they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that just as you are lifted up on the cross and lifted up again in your resurrection, so, Lord, we spiritually are saved from our sin. We are transferred out of the, darkness, the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. And so we too can be lifted up under your rule and reign as you suffer and serve. For people like us who don't deserve it. May we boast in grace and in your mercy in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.